0: You know, we had an administration that really, truly wasn't just anti-science, but almost lost interest in it. We knew it was going to be difficult, but I don't think anybody anticipated how bad it would be and how every single step of the way was having to go uphill, having to fight for accurate information and public health agencies being heavily politicized and controlled. And, you know, the vaccine has been politicized. Masks have been politicized.
1: That's Dr. Saskia Popescu an infectious disease epidemiologist and senior infection preventionist in Phoenix, Arizona. Saskia also holds academic appointments at the University of Arizona and George Mason University, where she lectures on biopreparedness, pandemic and
0: outbreak response. I'm really hoping that the extreme pain and cost we've all experienced, both on a personal, public and a healthcare level, means we're gonna call for action again. I really, truly am hoping that we will say, no, you have to prepare for this. You have to invest in this. And not just today or the next four years. This can't be a political decision. It has to be an inherent, ingrained in the U.S. country that says, we are going to prepare for these things because they happen and they impact us all and some more than others.
1: I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Katherine Delson and Deep Pava, And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome back to Contact World Truth and Health, everyone. So we're entering a new phase of the pandemic. It's a phase that's going to take adjustments in the way that we live our lives. And it's really going to test our humanity. It's going to test our concept of civil liberty for the sake of keeping other people safe. And it's going to test the way that employers and businesses conduct themselves, especially so that we don't actually create more disparities or inequities that we've talked about during this show. So Catherine and Deepti, you are key team members at Contact World. What have you each learned about the way that contact world may be poised to improve public health systems and the way that employers treat disease?
2: I personally believe that we have been since the very start of the pandemic trying to talk to various public health agencies to understand exactly what the problems are and how we can solve for it. For instance, the communication gap that exists, you know, really how public health agencies are reaching the wider populations, not just the people who have access to, let's say, the news and the media and through social media, but also rural populations. And now we are understanding that there is this vaccine distribution which is already taking place, but how do you really work towards creating solutions that enable equitable access, not only technology-based, but also paper cards-based, because that is what is needed for the larger population to be able to make it more accessible as well as end-to-end seamless. You know, for instance, we have one of the partnerships with PathCheck Foundation on MIT Media Labs to help fight this pandemic. So I think Looking back in one year, we've come a long way and definitely trying to address as many problems that we can for public health in particular, because they are the ones who are most underserved. Catherine, how about you? What do you think about it? It's hard to believe it's
3: been a year already. I think it's amazing that we've endeavored to really be the champion for public health in so many respects, not only through our offerings, but really facilitating the conversations that must be had concerning our public health system. How do we support those public entities going through this crisis? And not just through the crisis, but emerging from the other side of it as well. Our solutions are great, but I think even greater is our drive and our ambition to really be that beacon of hope. And we've had great partners, people like Daniel Dawes, we have Nature, so many different organizations. And I think To me, that's the most amazing part about what we're doing. And it's going to be even better to see how else we can help not only public health, but other business entities and support the economy and move this nation forward in the direction that it needs to go.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I've really learned along the way is that while some companies are addressing the needs pretty well of enterprise and schools and things like that, what most organizations seem to be missing is that if you don't have the technology at the public health level and the public health agency level, then you're really missing the boat. And so I think that with us partnering with NATO to deploy Smart Health RM to the health agencies, it actually gives us significantly better access to serving employer establishments. And I actually think that that's the way to achieve a sustainable public health infrastructure is by looking at everything cohesively. We have to look at how to integrate testing, contact tracing, vaccination, case management. And I think that We have some novel ways, and it hasn't been easy, but it's a testament to the partnerships that we've established. We're installing Smart Health RM at the Harvard campus this month. Some of our partnerships that we've established along the way include a company called MeshTech. And what MeshTech does is, Through our Smart Health RM system, it provides contact tracing bracelets and key fobs and things that will help schools, hospitals, enterprise, all conduct public health and safety protocols at their site, including infection management. We also partnered with Connexon, whose IOT devices actually helped the National Football League get through its season successfully, which I thought was going to be impossible, to be candid. Actually, some of Connexon's protocols were just approved by the CDC for use in other applications like hospitals and schools. We've launched our ad agency called Engagency, and that bridges the gap between the issues of public health agencies and being able to connect with their communities. And I'm proud to say that Engagency is capable of reaching 250 million Americans every month through various mediums.
2: I think the most important phase this is for employers, because employers are right now at this decision point where it's like how to accelerate back to normal without overstepping the bounds, for instance, right? I'm a strong believer that vaccine passports, for instance, could be really something that would speed up coming back to normal for everyone, even if I know that there have been debates around it, around the topic, if it is something which should be done or not. But at the same time, if everything is done really with privacy as a central part of the solution and also all the considerations about maintaining control of these new technologies by the users themselves, it could actually help us. The European Commission is currently working on a legislative framework for a digital vaccine passport, the so-called digital green pass. And this passport will actually really allow at least the Europeans to start traveling between European countries. So there is a possibility that one could get back to normal in in their lives if we are able to implement such technological solutions as well, along with impactful, trustworthy communications. I feel that
3: communication is going to be a big part of us moving beyond the past and really looking forward to the future, I think really the communication here is going to be the important part where the accurate information is being disseminated out there to people so that they know we are rebounding. We are in a safer place. There are safer measures that they can take so that they can resume their lives as
1: usual. We cannot get complacent. Actually, the world cannot be complacent. We need to make sure that we forge these vaccine partnerships as being discussed amidst the world to make sure that the uh, developing nations have access to vaccines sooner. We need to outfit public health agencies across the world because as evidenced in this country, which spends more than anywhere practically on healthcare, they still don't have a basic case management system. It's crazy. So there's a lot of work to do, but when there's a lot of work to do, it also shows the opportunity that exists to improve. While it's really a tragedy that 70% of our health agencies may not have a solution to manage cases. It also shows you that when you empower those agencies with technology, that's your opportunity to fix things and make sure that people don't forget about what's happened here. And what the pandemic has done is it's just exposed the inequities that existed,
2: the infrastructural problems that existed, the neglected public health sector, for instance. And the pandemic in one year has actually accelerated the work that would have been otherwise done in the next 20 years. So it's not just an opportunity, it's an opportunity to innovate and an opportunity to really design better, to start better, as if it was something that was really needed. And also, I think a lot of times the frustration of
3: people is that they want more, right? They want the public agencies to have done more, yet we're not aware of the deficiencies. They don't have access to the case management systems. They don't have access to a lot of the support that they need. They don't have access to the funding that they need to do the work. It's good to shed the light. It takes away the, the incongruence in disbelief that the public health system doesn't care about them. It's not as much as they don't care, as much as they are limited in what they can do with the resources that they do have.
1: Their hands have been tied because, you know, going back to the theme of communications, they lack resources. And then we have all these conflicting messages that actually have created villains out of some of them. And it's really unfortunate. But like you guys have said, I'm really hopeful about where we're headed because, you know, we're eyes wide open. We know what it means to have a lack of infrastructure for public health. And that, again, means that we have an opportunity to improve it. We have an opportunity to innovate, and we have an opportunity to fix it. And I feel really blessed and fortunate that Contact World has been such a central part of that conversation. And now we're moving into a phase where Contact World is going to be, I think, a central part of the solution, hopefully throughout the world. But at minimum, we're going to save lives with what we've developed and really fortunate to be a part of this. As always, I appreciate the important conversations we have together. So let's hear more from our expert today, Dr. Saskia Popescu. Nice to meet you, Saskia. I really appreciate your time today. Nice to meet you. So I read a lot about you. If you don't mind, if you could tell us about yourself and your expertise in your own words.
0: Well, I'm an infectious disease nerd. (laughs) So I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and infection preventionist. My background's really been in pandemic response, biodefense, global health security, and preparing hospitals for infectious disease events like Ebola or COVID-19.
1: And what made you interested in pursuing this life's work?
0: Well, I was a kid and my stepmom, we were on vacation, just handed me a book she'd finished, which was The Hot Zone. And in hindsight, it's probably one of the most dramatic, sensationalized accounts of any outbreak. But it really was just very captivating to me. And I became fascinated with infectious diseases. And that just kind of snowballed as I got older. And I worked with the Southern Arizona AIDS Foundation and the Pima County Department of Health. I had a lot of wonderful volunteering experience. And then I fell in love with global health security and biodefense. You know, this notion that disease can destabilize areas or be misused for nefarious purposes. And, you know, my first drop out of graduate school was in a hospital, and I realized how vulnerable hospitals are in the U.S. You know, it's kind of been growing and snowballing after that. So nerdom through and through. You know, when I was a kid, I, I asked my mom, because I had just read The Hot Zone, and I wanted to be a pathologist without really understanding what it meant. I was like, I want to be one for Halloween. And she got me a hazmat suit. <laughs> and I was, I was about eight, and everybody thought I was an egg yolk, but you know, just kind of grew from there. Yeah.
1: That's great. So I want to start with something a little unusual for our show, but I think it's pretty relevant. You studied the classics at University of Arizona, and your senior capstone was the impact of disease on the fall of the Roman Empire. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah. You know, what's so funny. I haven't really talked classics for so long. And then as COVID took off and kind of the international infectious disease community grew, we all realized some of us have very diverse backgrounds. And I love classics. So I studied ancient Rome. And again, this fascination of infectious diseases really took hold. And I was like, well, how can I mix these two fields? Because I knew I was going to go into public health and epidemiology. So I was reading a lot about infectious diseases in terms of military conquests, because very, very impacting, especially towards the later period of the empire. And you know, I was like, well, can I just do this? And thankfully I had wonderful advisors and they were like, yeah, run with it. Talk about how it impacted, you know, military, how destabilized, how much resource had to go into it. Because, you know, we're talking about yellow fever and smallpox and every kind of diarrheal illness you can imagine. I got to translate some old texts from Latin and learn about disease. And there are some wonderful books out there. So it was really fascinating. I mean, of course, you're not going to solve that question in a Senior capstone, <laughs> but it was a great place to start. And I always joke with my husband that if I get any free time, I'm going to go back and like keep studying that because I love that so much.
1: <laughs> it's a really interesting topic. What would you say that the pandemic has taught you about our country?
0: You know, I think there's been a lot of lessons. And if you were to ask me every single day, it would probably change, honestly. Today, it feels that we really, really struggle with hubris. And there were some really great reviews of global health security and how much resource we've put into biodefense. You know, there was an article that said, we've spent $60 billion in biodefense since the Amerithrax attacks in 2001 and 2002. And yet I see a single case of unexpected Ebola in 2014 brought the U.S. healthcare system to its knees and now COVID. And we're really struggling to learn the lessons because I think we assume that if we throw a ton of money at something it fixes the problem. And there's this hubris in that, well, we spend a lot of money on healthcare and a lot of money on, you know, biodefense and military, so naturally we should be able to respond to infectious diseases. And we see that the U.S. has been probably one of the best examples of a very industrialized country that has so struggled to respond to an infectious disease. I mean, we were lucky that it didn't have a higher mortality rate because I cannot imagine how much more horrible and complex this would be. And we've already lost almost 540,000 Americans to this, which is obscene to me. So today, my answer is hubris. Tomorrow, it's probably something different. But Just this overwhelming expectation that we would be able to handle it. Because I think if you ask people that work in public health or infectious disease, the answer is, it's going to happen. We don't know when, but it will. And it's going to be a lot harder than we realize. But the politicization and the hubris that we experienced, I think, probably were the hardest pieces.
1: What would you say was the biggest contributing factor to the reason that the United States in particular, outside of hubris, was so adversely affected and had, you know, for an industrialized country, just such a devastation?
0: You know, one of the things that I think we really struggled with outside of something as specific as like testing or supply chain was we had an administration that really, truly wasn't just anti-science, but almost lost interest in it. I think so many of us working in public health before COVID-19 hit, were like, okay, if we have a biological event under the Trump administration, whether it's intentional or accidental or natural like COVID-19, we knew it was going to be difficult because from defunding the PREDICT program and pulling out of the WHO, just really not a lot of investment in public health and global public health. But I don't think anybody anticipated how bad it would be and how every single step of the way was having to go uphill, having to fight for accurate information And public health agencies being heavily politicized and controlled. And, you know, at some point, I think it was April of 2020, the Trump administration just basically gave back response to the states and said, all right, you deal with it now. And I think that was a really big piece. We almost could never catch up. And it set this tone of politicization that we were not able, we're still struggling with. You know, the vaccine has been politicized. Masks have been politicized. And... It's really hard to come back from that and to repair the trust in science and these public health agencies that really just horrible attacks. I'm still struggling with that because it's hard not to take it personally when you work in it. But I think really that set, you know, I keep saying tone, but it set a dangerous precedence for us that we were never able to catch up. So I think it's going to be a long time before we truly make those gains again.
1: What would you say you've learned about yourself during the process or the last year?
0: I have not been tested in this way, and I realize that I'm a very independent, self-reliant person, and you can't be that in this situation. You know, there's a certain amount of mental health, if I'm being brutally honest, that we're all really struggling. I mean, everybody's struggling with it, but there was something very unique, I think, about working in infectious diseases and public health and just epi in general, and Also doing science communication, you know, social media, and especially as a woman, like all of those things and having to fight misinformation and weird disciplinary attacks, that was exhausting. A group of us were just talking about this. It's hard to kind of bond with other people during that because they don't know what it's like dealing with some of these weird nuanced things that you're experiencing. So I realized that to go through this and any kind of healthy, whatever that means right now, mental frame... You know, really meant making sure I, you know, I was spending time with my like support group, my epivirology infectious disease support group, so that we could kind of vent about these things because you need that. You need that companionship normally, but especially with people that know the very unique challenges you're facing. And it's harder, of course, when you can't like go out and get a coffee together. But Taking the time to invest in yourself through that experience, that's been hard for me because I'm a workhorse. I'll just keep working and working and working. And I'm horrible about taking a break. (laughs) But forcing myself to do that was something that I really learned and I'm grateful for.
1: That's good. So congratulations on the new book coming out via Johns Hopkins University Press. How cost containment undermines disease containment, political and economic obstacles to investing in infection prevention and control. Can you tell us more about it?
0: Yeah, so this actually stemmed from my doctoral dissertation. And I was talking to my dissertation chair, Dr. Koblenz. We were talking about hospital preparedness in response to Ebola and anthrax and the next pandemic. This was way back in like 2015, 2016. And It's like, you don't understand, hospitals have these resources. I'm one of those resources. I build biopreparedness programs, but nobody invests in them. They see infection control as like this necessary evil they have to have. So they invest in it in the most basic way possible, and it's kind of a check on the box for a regulatory purpose. So digging more into this, it was really profound to see how hospitals and healthcare, and it's not unique to the U.S. I think we're just a shining example of it, really see infection prevention which means trying to prevent the spread of disease in a hospital, whether it's a pandemic or, you know, an infection associated with your catheter, they see these as kind of this cost center and this burden and not a revenue generator. So it's so many challenges from a hospital administrator stance to investing in these programs, but then also how these programs don't just prevent healthcare-associated infections, they also prepare the hospital for things like Ebola and COVID. Like, we're the ones that are responsible for responding to them. So it kind of snowballed, and I was really fortunate to love what I wrote, and then I got to go harass (laughs) some folks from Johns Hopkins Press and say, hey, can I turn this into a book? And this was actually very, very early 2020, before really we were seeing the impact of COVID. You know, saying hospitals are really vulnerable. And they see biopreparedness and infection prevention as kind of like this thing that they really don't want to invest in unless they absolutely have to. And it's costing billions in healthcare-associated infections, and it's going to cost billions during a pandemic. And it's weird looking back now. So that's really what it is. I'm looking at everything from MERS and sars cov classic, which was the one that we dealt with in 2002, healthcare-associated infections, which are a huge problem in the U.S., and, you know, of course, COVID-19 and Ebola... And seeing the regulatory attempts that the U.S. has made to try and force hospitals to really invest in these programs, how they're not really working the way we want to, and inherently how it's us, patients, and the public that have to pay for these failures when they do occur. I think
1: I know your answer, but true or false, employers and healthcare providers don't need to change their biopreparedness plans because we'll all be vaccinated soon and it's not worth the investment.
0: No. (laughs) You know, one of the mistakes we always make is preparing for the next threat with the lessons learned from the old one. And I think that kind of sets us up for failure a little bit. I'm really hoping that the extreme Pain and cost we've all experienced, both on a personal, public, and a healthcare level, means we're going to call for action again. I'm very hopeful for that because I think, you know, with Ebola, it didn't impact everybody like COVID has. So I really, truly am hoping that we will say, no, you have to prepare for this. You have to invest in this. And not just today and the next couple of years or the next four years. This can't be a political decision. It has to be an inherent, ingrained in the US country that says, We are going to prepare for these things because they happen and they impact us all and some more than others. So I'm cautiously optimistic, (laughs) but I also know that we have a very bad habit of, you know, when something's not an immediate threat to us, forgetting about it and not really wanting to put the money into it.
1: Right. So do you see specific programs? Let's just say that you had your druthers and you actually were designing a way that the hospitals and maybe like long term care facilities actually started to prepare. What kind of technology and what kind of things do you think would be implemented, you know, in an ideal world?
0: So one of the things that we did see is after Ebola in 2014, the U.S. Health and Human Services and ASPR built a biopreparedness kind of tiered hospital approach to special pathogens. Now, special pathogens are very impacting high-consequence diseases, Ebola, smallpox, MERS. So, and, you know, COVID-19, of course, everybody's impacted, but They built a whole tier of hospitals and funded them to be prepared to handle patients, you know, with Ebola for several days or hours and then some more heavily. And around March of last year, almost all of the funding for that fell apart and was not renewed. We went from around 260 assessment hospitals and 60 treatment facilities and then 10 regional treatment facilities to just 10 regional treatment facilities. And that wasn't a perfect program. Nothing is. So the first I would say is we need to start putting money back into that, but also include, as you mentioned, long-term care facilities, because we've seen that just be such a significant transmission source when you're dealing with a respiratory virus. From a technology standpoint, I would really, really love if we offered more training and access to resources for those small rural hospitals, for those small long-term care facilities. You know, I saw New York Health and Hospital Systems is doing this really great virtual training for Ebola with an Oculus, you know, virtual reality. And I really love that concept because putting on the PPE, you're wasting a lot of PPE in the training module, but if you can do it virtually, it gives you the general process. And I love that. And I thought that was such a nice way to expand the training, but the hard reality is that it's not just about the money and the tech. It's that you have to have more bodies, right? We need to have more people in these roles because one of the problems that we always see is public health will get a lot of money But unless you have those people in working, that's half the battle. You know, it's like when you're really, really busy and you get somebody to help you, you're too busy to train them. So I think the biggest thing right now is just ramping up to make sure they have infection prevention resources continuously in these facilities and get the time to do the training or do specialized training.
1: What do you think employers will do now and in the future to keep people safe? Let's move outside of a provider environment and think about the future of employers.
0: That's a really, really important question. You know, we actually just wrote an op-ed about vaccine passes and vaccine passports, and not just at a country level, but also at an employer level. So if employers are going to request or mandate, how do you operationalize that? You know, do you have a system? How do you check that they're valid and not forged? How do you track them, et cetera? So, I mean, that's a huge topic right now. But when it comes to actually keeping people safe— One of the hardest things I've noticed for employers, whether it's a really big company or a smaller shop, is translating CDC guidance, public health guidance, into operations for them. You know, what does it really mean? So, you know, we spent a lot of time on disinfection and cleaning, which I'm a fan of because it prevents a lot of other things besides COVID-19. But right now, there's this huge focus, and rightfully so, on ventilation and, you know, shared air because this is a respiratory pathogen. But... What does that mean if you don't own your store or you don't have access to your HVAC system or you can't afford five HEPA filters? So that, I think, is one of the hardest pieces is helping them translate these larger guidance and recommendations into actual, pragmatic, legitimate things. And you know, if you have $5,000 to work with, what does that look like? What are you going to invest in? So that's what I think right now we need to really be focusing on ensuring that they have the resources to do that, because it's not just one thing, right? It's all these prevention strategies that they're needed. And that is easily one of the biggest hurdles, you know, something I just actually saw from a bar that I love in Phoenix that's, of course, open because I'm in Arizona and everything's open. <laughs> they were focusing on testing so much. They're testing all of their bartenders once a week, but it's this tiny enclosed space it's really fascinating to see this focus on one intervention strategy and testing has been an example of that because it feels very tangible. You know, you get this negative result that I think has been a hard cultural shift. We really like, OK, just tell me what to do. So I give everybody a mask and I distance them. Then it's like, well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that.
1: You know, one of the things that I think will be interesting to watch is what the NFL did in using contact tracing technology, which I know some of those protocols were actually approved for use in other, you know, like hospitals by the CDC. How do you see those kind of things being used in private establishments or do you? Because you mentioned like an Arizona bar, let's say a bartender tests positive. If they don't have any kind of contact tracing for their customers, then it may not be very relevant. So how do you see that evolving or do you?
0: So there's two different kinds of processes I'm seeing, at least. There's the wearable device, you know, something that's kind of like a Fitbit or, you know, on your keychain, and that's kind of the proximity detector. And then there's also the one that's just on your phone, the app, you know, the little opt-in choice. I tend to see people being more okay with the one on their phone. I think it's a helpful tool if it can tell you you're in too close proximity. So if everybody was wearing it and it's like, "Mm, you're within six feet, back up, that would be a really nice proactive measure. New Zealand has actually been a really great example where they have people scan in QRL codes, I believe it is, wherever they go. And that's been their contact tracing piece. So I like that because it's more of a proactive buy-in. You know, people understand the importance of it. And, you know, that's been working really well. Some of the contact tracing out of New Zealand is phenomenal. I mean, they're getting it done in hours and they can immediately quarantine. So some of this... Proximity device, contact tracing tech, I think, has a lot of promise and can be a very helpful tool for public health, but it cannot be used alone. And I stress that any technology rolled out during a public health emergency has some ethical considerations that we also have to be mindful of.
1: It feels like when we go to a restaurant, we're getting more accustomed to scanning a QR code to get a menu and things like that. So I think that there's a lot of innovation that can happen with tracing, you know, pretty rudimentary system that if you elect to notify that place that you've been there, suddenly you have, you know, without too much disruption, a way to start tracking people that go to
0: places like you just said. I think that the piece I worry about, though, and we saw this a little bit actually with even vaccine distributions, is that when we make things electronic inherently we're going to be missing a huge chunk of the population that maybe doesn't have a smartphone. I think it was West Virginia. You know, they really ramped up their distribution and vaccine intake. But one of the first lessons they learned is they made the whole process online. And I think it was like 30% of their population didn't have access to it. So I love making things electronic when we can, you know, to avoid paper and waste. But I also want to be acutely aware that that does create a bit of an equity challenge.
1: We mentioned internationally, and I know you're an expert for the European Center for Disease Control. How do you see the pandemic affecting the world in the next five years, given that there's not going to be vaccination everywhere?
0: I think it's going to require a lot of international cooperation and discussion, especially when we're talking about vaccines being used as entry for certain countries. You know, maybe you don't have to quarantine when you go there. You know, especially as several countries are making their own vaccines or they might not approve of another country's, if we had a vaccine passport, would we accept AstraZeneca? So those kinds of things. I think really that this is going to have to have these larger global health conversations and really reinforce the geopolitics of all of this so that we work together and we're not creating additional health disparities. You know, I've also seen some numbers that it's gonna take some countries decades to fully vaccinate their population. And I just, I'm so blown away by that. And it really emphasizes that we have to help support that because we're so scared about variants, but variants happen when the virus gets spread. So if nothing else, even in the most selfish mind frame, if we say, I want to protect myself, and that means ensuring that we don't have variants moving forward, that could potentially impact vaccine efficacy. So we have to ensure everybody gets access to the vaccines. That's something that I've really been thinking about a lot lately, because I keep hearing people saying they want to travel internationally. And that just feels like a very privileged thing to say right now. I would love to travel internationally, but I also know that some of the countries that I would like to go back and visit are not places that have a lot of access to the vaccines. And it feels, it feels very privileged to be doing that. And I try to be a good steward of public health. You know, am I coming from an area with high transmission to an area of low transmission? So that's something, you know, I think we're going to have to have bigger conversations about.
1: Yeah. And then the other challenge is that these countries are almost apt to push the envelope because they're also struggling due to a lack of tourism. Pretty complicated.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> public health is not easy. And <laughs> a global pandemic, one thing we see is everybody is in a different position, right? So Brazil, it's heartbreaking what's going on right now. And I think, you know, we have to put more resources into supporting them. And then you also have some countries like Australia and New Zealand who are doing really, really well with this. So I see often these conversations being had in a vacuum. And we're very focused on like, Well, the U.S. is doing okay. Mm. (laughs) That's a very variable term there. It's getting better, quote unquote, which it is, but not at the rate that I think we would all like to see. But then you have other countries like the Czech Republic that are now we're starting to see more lockdowns. So we are seeing these potential third waves. And I just really, really worry when people talk about vacations that it feels so premature right now. It feels like we're just starting to get vaccines rolled out. And only in some of the more wealthy countries. So maybe like pump the brakes, take a local trip.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things like we learned from Dr. Bill faggy early on when we were designing some of our technology was he talked about how he used targeted vaccination to contain smallpox, where they would identify disease cluster and then vaccinate around it. Have you seen any promising low cost point of care testing that might make targeted vaccination viable or other surveillance? you know, at least alleviate some of the spread in maybe developing countries?
0: I will always defer to the immunologist and the virologist for the best test because there's so many out there right now. But one of the things that I honestly really worry about when it comes to point of care testing, meaning I'm thinking of it not necessarily in point of care at a hospital or an urgent care, but the test people want to do at home because that's been a big topic lately is how is it being used? Is this test people are doing before they have a gathering. How is it reported then? Do people trust a positive result and are like, oh, well, you know, maybe I should just go get another test. That's something I worry about because we really don't have infectious disease tests, diagnostic tests for at-home application. So there's a lot of logistics, a lot of human factors, and a lot of consideration for larger public health when we talk about those more point-of-care at-home tests. You know, I think I would lean into, in that situation, not basing availability of that with vaccines. I would say target those areas that are experiencing, of course, high transmission, but also have a lot of under-resourced pockets and underserved people that we know don't have access to a lot of healthcare systems or testing. Because if we based our decisions solely on testing and we know there are underrepresented groups of people that don't get access to testing, that's an inherently flawed strategy, right? So we have to target the most vulnerable populations.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think you've kind of referenced this issue a few times without really talking about it, but what do you think about the data silos? And do you see how we're going to maybe innovate that? Because it seems to be one of the big issues is that, you know, if you just get tested in a vacuum, that's one thing. And, or if you get vaccinated and we don't understand what that means or how it's affected you, do you see innovation and, you know, the integration of our data systems for public health?
0: I hope so. I mean, you know, there's a lot of antiquated public health being done, right, in terms of data, like faxing in things. (laughs) I mean, public health departments literally still use fax machines.
1: No, I know. Even Harris County, we learned that in the beginning where they had a stack of faxes on the ground.
0: A hundred percent. And I was that person that would send in those reports to the health department. You know, even I remember thinking when we were having to operationalize reporting cases in the hospitals to the health department, it's not an easy process. It's not like you can just magically upload an Excel sheet. There has to be a certain amount of work that goes into it. And I think if we can streamline that process so it could be done in batches, that alone will make a huge difference during a large surge or case count. But I think more and more, we see so much siloing in how things are done. I look at like the COVID tracking project, which was an amazing source of COVID data during this. And it was created because of a gap you know, a void that existed with publicly accessible COVID data and the explanation for it. And, you know, first, I think it's important to recognize the amount of work that goes into collecting and analyzing and then disseminating this information by public health agencies. It's ugly (laughs) on the best of days. So anything to help them, 100%, we should be doing that. So it's multiple pieces, right? It's the actual reporting, the collection, the analyzing, and then the presentation. You know, I look at in Arizona... Maricopa County is a very large county here but they only report our county specific COVID data every like 3 to 4 weeks. You got to go to the larger health department website for that, the state one. Cuz it's so much work. It's a ton of work to collect that. There's a backlog. So I think anything we can do to create a more efficient reporting tool that doesn't rely on so much manpower would be really really helpful. But I know that this also means that we have to address data disparities and Whether that's collecting vaccine information or demographic information about tests, it's mind blowing to me that we're still struggling with this, honestly.
1: Yeah. We're part of a project at Satcher Health Leadership Institute called the Health Equity Tracker Project. And on one hand, it's interesting that being able to install systems that start to collect demographic data, but I feel like there's also a misperception that from people that might think that the data is actually for the wrong reasons. And that's because, I mean, it's our fault. You know, there's like a, disconnect there.
0: How we communicate that, I think, is such a huge piece. So one thing that kept kind of mulling over my head is when you would go to sign up for your COVID vaccine, one of the questions, at least in Arizona, is, are you insured? You know, what what is your insurance status? And even though the vaccine is free, I know a lot of people that waited or were nervous that they were going to get hit with an insurance bill because of that question. And I just was like, this is such an easy fix. We should be telling people this is just a demographic, you know, information collection piece. It is in no way, shape, or form going to cause you to not get a vaccine or be charged for a vaccine. But that was mind-blowing to me. And sometimes, you know, I'm I'm an epi, so I love data collection and all of the little pieces. But unless you explain what those are and what you're collecting them for, and that it's not going to impact the quality of care or access to care, you know, then you can't be surprised when the information collection is incomplete.
1: Yeah. And then it's not public health's fault, but we have a lot of trust to rebuild because of the way that some politicians have, you know, managed things. So in closing, is there anybody that you look up to or that inspires you in your career?
0: Yeah. You know, right now I'm constantly amazed. There's actually a lot of women that I look up to right now in public health. Maria Van Kerkhoff is one at the WHO. Angela Rasmussen, who's a virologist. Alexandra Phelan is a health humanitarian lawyer. I mean, there's so many. Honestly, Seema is one of them.
1: We had her on two episodes. Yeah. She's
0: amazing. I mean, I wish I could be a tenth as cool as she is. And I always tell her that. (laughs) Jessica, you know, Malate Rivera is a wonderful science communicator. I mean, honestly, I could make a massive list of, you know, all the phenomenal people out there. I'm inspired by daily truly. And because one thing is horrible and as much as I complain about social media during this is that it's actually brought a lot of us together that we might not have ever got to interact with. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that.
1: Well, as a fellow nerd, I really appreciate your time today. And this was a really good discussion. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: I want to thank everyone for their patience awaiting release of episode nine. We have a lot happening with Contact World. We're nearing completion of season one of this podcast and expect to be a publicly traded company soon. In other news, we just received honorable mention from Fast Company in two categories for World Changing Idea and won two Stevie Awards in American Business. We have so much to share with you and appreciate every moment you've spent with us over the last six months or so as we learn together about our broken healthcare system and most importantly, the things that we're doing to fix it. Please don't miss episode 10. And for those of you just joining Contact World Truth and Health, check out our prior eight episodes on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Justin Beck. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.